Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Jamie Eads joining you as always. Thanks for tuning in to the Drum Shuffle. This is episode 24. Hope everybody had a great Independence Day holiday here in the States. Uh, our neighbors up to the north just celebrated Canada Day. Um, summer is in full swing. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just got back from uh, the Summer NAM show down in Nashville. Had a great time hanging out with my buddy Josh Touchton from Natal Drums. I uh, got to see Kent Oberly from Dream Symbols. Uh, just saw all kinds of cool gear. So uh, we had a really good time. Hope everybody's summer is off to a great start. We've got a great episode for you today. We are being joined by jazz legend Peter Erskine. So please stay tuned. Lost Cabos drumsticks may be the best kept secret from drummers today. Lost Cabos Drumsticks makes the finest tools to touch a drummer's hands in the business. The best news, almost every popular stick size is available in both white hickory and red hickory. If you don't know what red hickory is, it's made from the heartwood of the hickory tree, unlike regular white hickory, which is made from sapwood. Red hickory drumsticks will hold up to even the hardest hitting drummers. Their durability comes from the density of the wood, but they do not sacrifice the feel. Please visit LosCabosDrumsticks.com to learn more about their products. And don't forget to ask at your favorite retailer for Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, gang. Uh, as I mentioned, our guest really needs no introduction, but I'm going to try to do this justice. Uh, Peter Erskine, of course, a member of the Modern Drummer Hall of Fame, just a legendary uh, jazz and fusion drummer. Uh, Peter studied at the University of Indiana. Um, he has over 700 albums under his belt, uh, 50 of which have been released under his own name or as a co-leader of the band. Uh, he has played with Weather Report, uh, Steely Dan, Joni Mitchell, uh, the Yellow Jackets, Pat Metheny, uh, you just name it. Peter Erskine has done it, so we were very glad for him to to take some time uh, and come on the drum shuffle and talk with us. Uh, I think it's a great interview, and I hope you guys will really enjoy it. So without further ado, let's welcome Peter Erskine to the drum shuffle. Good morning, Peter. How are you today? I'm fine, Jamie. Thanks for calling. Oh, thanks for taking time to come on the drum shuffle. We really do appreciate it. Peter, my, uh, it's, it's my pleasure. Sorry to interrupt you. Oh, but. oh no, that's that's fine. Um, it's a great honor for me to have just, uh, you know, a, a, a luminary in the world of drumming on on the, the show. It's uh, a great honor for me, um, as I said. And I want to offer congratulations because uh, 2017, you were elected into the Modern Drummer Hall of Fame, correct? <laughs> that's right. I thought you were going to congratulate me for... Uh uh, the fact that, that our daughter, Myers, can just, uh, uh, was just named one of the top ten comedians uh, uh, in Variety magazine uh, uh, <laughs> to, to look out for in, 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 in this coming year. So um, I'm so excited about that. 
uh, the Mardi Gras thing was was nice, and uh, I'm grateful to all the readers of the magazine for uh, uh, for voting that way, and and it's uh, uh, you know always an honor to to be mentioned, to have your name placed alongside uh, those of not only your colleagues who you respect so much, but you know your drum heroes, the uh, uh, the men and women, but primarily, to be honest, uh, mostly men who have uh, uh, created the language of of the drums. Well, sure, absolutely, and and you know, I, growing up, you know, I, I can remember at least three or four issues of Modern Drummer that that you graced the cover, and I know that you were voted, you know, best jazz drummer of the year multiple times i'm i'm gonna guess a dozen um you know you've just been so prolific with your output over the years um you know and typically on our show we we say you know how did you get your start in drumming but i think you've been doing it for so long everyone knows who you are but you know just your work you know weather report the the yellow jackets um you know as a band leader you've put out just dozens upon dozens of records um you know i i guess what i'm trying to get to in terms of a question is what's left (laughs) to do in your career really um uh well thank you and i'm i'm glad you stopped with the uh, I appreciate it all, but you know, my my teacher, uh, Professor George Gaber, um, would always say about things like uh, awards. Um, he'd say, "Yeah, that and twenty five cents will get you a ride on any bus in New York." <laughs> um, the price of, of of a bus ride has has gone up quite a bit, but um, I think the sentiment remains. Um, still accurate in in that um you know those things are nice but uh how should i put it you know it's an acknowledgement that that people are listening to the work you're doing but it doesn't really affect the way you sound the way that you play and and ultimately that's the most important thing um and and so uh, I'm going to take this opportunity to make this a, a, a bit of a teachable moment, uh, not to you, but uh, just uh, uh, to any listeners who might be interested. Um, you know, as drummers, we tend to get hung up on the, uh, you know, how do I sound, and and we get self-conscious, and this is true, I think, of most performers. How does the other perceive me? Right. Sure. So. Um, when you surrender that and, and you realize that, uh, uh, you know, if you're playing the drums and Steve Gadd and and uh, Brian Blade and Dave Weckl and and uh, Eric Harlan or whoever, you know, uh, walk into the, the jazz club, let's say, uh, your first thought will be, wow, I wish they'd been here for the earlier set. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, you might... Uh, you might start playing differently. You're all of a sudden self-conscious, and 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 you start second-guessing your choices. Um, if you if you kind of spin that around to the wow, what what a treat, what an honor that that someone like like these drummers have come in here. Um, 
And realizing that whatever they think, it doesn't change the way you play. And, and, and you have no control about what they think or how much attention they're paying to you or not. So um, by, by making the mistake of investing in, into what others think of your drumming, then you, uh, you, you kind of fall prey to that, that syndrome of just uh, second-guessing all your choices and, and questioning your own value when, when it really should just be you should just tune into what you're playing and, and, and play what you want to hear. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate freedom, and that's the promise of music, that uh, within the confines of whatever job we're doing, we, we have an infinite number of choices. We can play what we want, and, and that's the only thing you really need to satisfy, ultimately. So once I learned to like not worry about, you know, does he like it or does she like it, just like, do I like it? You know, and after uh, uh, many years of listening to music and being somewhat well informed about musical choices, I can make those decisions. Now, if you if you put me in a situation of like, hey Pete, you know, play this uh, Metallica tune, um, no, I, w- I wouldn't know what to do, you know, because I just don't know that language. And that's not to say that I don't like the language. I, I have great respect and admiration for drummers who play all the different styles of music. It's, you know, they're all different skill sets and, and um, uh, you know, a lot of things I can't do, but certainly I, I can't speak that language. So, of course, then I would be kind of looking around, did I just say the right thing or not? Um, but if you're, if you're working in, in, in a musical environment that, that you're conversant, and you know that language, that style, whatever. Um, you got to trust yourself, and so that's my long way of saying, um, you know, have fun when you play, folks. Life is short. Yeah, and I mean, you you bring up so many great points um, in what you just said. Um, you know, I have said for many, many years to my, you know, my friends that are great jazz drummers, I can't do what you do. That's, that's not how my voice comes out on the instrument. I grew up in the rock and roll world. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I think however much time I spent playing along to, you know, Zeppelin records or, or whatever the case may be, I would have to spend that same amount of time, you know, in jazz or, or funk to get to that same level of playing. So, uh, so I understand exactly what you're saying with, you know, with the Metallica analogy. Um, but, but, it, but it's interesting. It raises a question. Um, Probably more drummers, let's say at a certain age, you know, like midlife, um, more non-jazz drummers seem to turn to jazz uh, versus the opposite, versus like jazz drummers saying, wow, I really, now I want to discover my roots. I, I mean, in, in fact, I sort of have done that opposite because I'm, uh, and, you know, I'm realizing that the, the way drummers played in early jazz and in early rock and pop, uh, there's a tremendous number of solutions to be found there for, uh, you know, drumming questions, I guess. Um, but by and large, most, most drummers uh, sooner or later seem to have a longing to, 
to develop more more skill sets that come from jazz than than the opposite. Yeah, I, just, I just bring it up as a question. Well, you know, I, I, I can only, you know, answer that personally. Um, and it's a great question. But, you know, I have found the older I get, um, you know, I've been playing for, you know, probably close to 30 years now. I've been doing it since I was, you know, just just a wee little guy. Um, but I have found that my love affair with the jazz grows by the day. You know, when I was when I was younger, I was like, oh, you know, it's cool. I understand these these are great drummers, but it wasn't my bag, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I just kept gravitating towards rock and and and, you know, hard rock and and pop music. Um, I, I just you know, I, I it wasn't that I ignored jazz. It just wasn't really on my radar. And as I've gotten older, I think you're right. You know, my love affair with jazz has grown and grown. I still can't play it yeah. <laughs> very well, but but I'll, I'll I'll press the question: Why? Um, you know, I don't understand um the the improvisational aspect of jazz. I'm not good at that, you know, just kind of comping with a band. That's not my thing. I was always, I think, over rehearsed. Now, as I continue playing, you know, um, I try things now and I'm starting to understand it a little bit better, but I always wanted to know exactly what I was going to do. And, and, you know, I'm a groove guy. I don't have tons of chops. So, you know, my focus has always been on, you know, the backbeat, quite mm -hmm. honestly, which in a lot of jazz music, it really isn't there from the drummer. You know, um, it, it comes from the other instruments in a, in a trio or a quartet. Um, but as I watch guys like you, um, you know, quite honestly play, I'm starting to understand it a little bit more. And, you know, if I if somebody put a gun to my head and said, OK, you're going to play with a jazz trio, I could make it through a set. But I don't I don't think it would be up to the standard that I would expect from myself, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. Uh Good answer. Um, my my thought on it is that um, I think at a certain point in everyone's life, you 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 want to understand the source. Uh, I mean, this is why uh, science exists. You know, it wasn't just so you know to invent the, um, the fax machine or or. The iPhone or whatever. I mean, it, it's it's to understand where we've come from to better anticipate where we might be going. So, a tremendous amount of science is is, is dedicated to um, discovering some of these basic truths about ourselves. And and the drum set, you know, it's it's a child of the jazz age. I mean, uh, it was created to play that music. It the, the original setup came out of uh, the you know the first time that a bass drum was set on the floor and a pedal contraption was attached to it and and instead of having one person playing a bass drum and another playing a snare drum they decided well you know uh, instead of two people we can have one fellow taking care of this and um, and then tom toms were added and then going from the the low boy hi hat 
in the contraptions before there was a, a, a hi hat um, to to the modern day hi hat, et cetera, et cetera. I, I didn't mean to get into a history of, of the drum set, but <laughs> no, it's it, fine. It, this is great. It, 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 you know, uh, the, the drums came out of uh, the, pretty much you know the, this creation of of jazz and improvised music, um, and the drummers were more relegated to to providing something similar to a backbeat. And um, they started improvising, and uh, even in a lot of the early Dixieland things, you can hear the drummers are, are kind of winging it. Uh, but bebop is where things really uh, opened up uh, for the drummers and, and, and the modern jazz kind of coming out of that. What's, what's funny, the older I've gotten, the more comfortable I've, I've become with like... Um, just playing that two and four backbeat in the context of jazz, um, uh, kind of doing my Sam Woodyard with Duke Ellington sort of thing, or or the way that Alvin Stoller or Irv Kotler would play on some of those Sinatra recordings. Just a nice, fat two and four, but in a swinging context. Sure. And it swings. I mean, uh, uh, I, I you know I love all the. The 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 post bop, Alvin Roy, Jack D. Jeanette, and Tony, and all you know, all those things, uh, and and pretty early on in, in my drum education, I I gravitated towards a lot of that. You know, I mean, Blakey and 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 Max Roach and and Buddy Rich were three of the first drummers I really listened to, and then Don Lamond. And Ozzy Johnson, his name's not so well known, um, but just they just happened to be on these recordings that, that I played over and over. Uh, and then Shelley Mann and blah blah blah, long long list. Um, the uh, the interesting thing I was I was speaking with pianist Kenny Warner about this. I, I just kind of lost thread of what I was talking about, but um, he said he's noticed in, in a number of drummers. And, and he works mostly with, with with drummers who who live and work in the New York New York City area. Um, that as they get older, they're they're playing more and more in an old style. Um, oh yeah. So anyway, I, what I was saying was when I was younger, I was really you know I was into the you know not playing the bass drum, not feathering the bass drum, and just using it for for syncopated accents. And and so I I kind of learned the history of, of, of the drum set a little bit ass backwards. Um, and uh, I, I never had a teacher uh, uh, who, who showed me um, uh, you know, a lot of the basic uh, snare drum method books or you know, the, the, the Charlie Wilcox and solos, a lot of the things like where the Philly Joe kind of drumming uh, the technique and ethos came out of. Um, so I had to kind of learn all that stuff by ear. And now that I'm a, a teacher, you know, I'm a professor at, at the University of Southern California. Um, you know, we 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 very much address um, the methodologies. You know, where did Philly Joe? Uh, uh, where does this drumming style come from? How did he develop the sticking patterns he uses? How did that influence other drummers? Um, so I, I, I think the, the reason that 
a lot of rock drummers have have this sort of quest, like this sort of like there's there's a there's something missing here in in my development or existence as a drummer. It's that quest to get back to the origins of the instrument, and that undeniably has to do with with jazz. We 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 can't escape it. We shouldn't want to escape it. We should want to embrace it because it's such an important part of the history of the instrument. Um, so it's not a, like you know jazz is hip or jazz is this or that. You know the drums are a jazz instrument for starters, and to to not investigate that um, sooner, you're, you're eventually you're, you're you're most likely going to want to later. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, you know, I mean, I've heard quotes from you saying that that you were a huge Beatles fan as a young man and, and that you completely that you loved rock music. But, you know, I mean, I've seen photos of you as as a child on stage kind of playing jazz. And I, if I'm not mistaken, please correct me if I'm wrong, but your father was was a bassist. Is that correct? Yeah, he, I mean, he was a psychiatrist by the time I was born, but he paid his way through medical school playing the bass. He had a jazz band. Um, the name of the band was Fred Erskine and his Music for Moderns. And uh, since we're uh, recording this uh, a couple days before Father's Day, it's a nice way to uh, uh, pay homage to him and remember him. Uh, you know, I had uh, one brother and two sisters. Were so four kids growing up in the house. I was the youngest, and I was the one that that just loved the music he liked playing on his record player, which was jazz. And, um, but when the Beatles came along, you know, in, in 1964, uh, uh, on, you know, on American TV, uh, yeah, I was totally swept up. I, I loved the sound. I loved the beat. Um, and those early, uh, you know, a lot of those early recordings, you know, Ringo's beat does have a swing feel to it of sorts. It, 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 it's, a, you know, kind of a shuffly bounce. I mean, it, it, it bounces, it dances. Um, and their harmonies were great. And their songs still sound good. I mean, they were, they were just an incredible event in, in, I think, the timeline of music history. And I feel really lucky that that I got to hear it. Now, it wasn't like, oh, I saw the Beatles and decided I wanted to be a drummer. I already felt pretty far along the way. I'd started when I was four or five. So, you know, nine years old when when the Beatles came on. on. And, and, And in fact, I used to wonder, I was like, wow, what? How would they sound if like Elvin was playing with them? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think they would have sounded very good. But uh, as a kid, I used to like. What if Grady Tate played with the Beatles? You know, like. Oh, that's that's fantastic! You know, I I never visualized that before until just now, Peter. So. <laughs> No, you can't. You can't unvisualize that. Yeah, I'm you, sorry. You can't unsee that. Um, well, you know, I mean, I think I think that's a really good point. And you know, you mentioned the fact that that we're recording this, um, you know, just before Father's Day, and of course, the the news broke yesterday that um, that Elvis, you know, his longtime drummer DJ Fontana had passed at uh, right at the age of 87 but you know those early rock and roll guys now i'm not saying ringo was an early rock and roll guy but he was certainly you know one of the guys that brought that to the masses you know Mm -hmm. on the the ed sullivan show but the early rock and roll drummers came from you know what people say oh it was rockabilly but most of those guys were jazz drummers that were 
that were twisting their way of playing for this new music called rock and roll. I mean, yeah, ex- exactly. And the earliest uh, studio drummers, you know, uh, uh, drummers in, in New York or Los Angeles, the New York drums like Panama Francis or even and Gary Chester. I mean, they were all jazz guys. Right. Um, uh, yeah. I, I, uh, uh, I, I read about the passing of, of, of Mr. Fontana and, and, um, uh, you know, I, I was a bit of an Elvis fan too. When I was a kid, I, uh, uh, you know, Hound Dog was, I used to love singing that. I, I just thought it was so cool. And it, and, and even as a as a as a young kid, I could recognize when I heard it coming out of the radio. I said, "This is different." You know, it just had a it had a different energy to it, right? Um, and and I think the I think the difference was the um, how should I put it? Even if there was a swing feel, there there was a there was a a lack of. Of a, of a politeness that was associated with most other pop music. Um, I don't know if that's the right word, but there was something that was that would reach out from the speaker of of, of the radio, and and it, it you know obviously it was unmistakable to so so many people who heard it because it was like wow this is this is something new, um, and. You know, we we all got our information. It was either through TV or the radio, and there were not that many channels of information. Now with the internet, I mean, you know, who knows where you're getting information? And many sources as there are readers or consumers sure. of, of data. Um, uh, but so it it, it was. Um, it was a simpler process somehow to keep track of of musical development. And in the nineteen sixties, particularly the mid to late sixties, um when when rock was just you know finding wow <laughs> we can do this, we can do that. And then jazz got very turned on by that. And like, wow, well we can do this or we can do that. Um, I've said this before. Every, every new album started to feel like a postcard from the future. And it was it was literally exciting to to get a new record. Whoa, you know. Um now I mean the the great thing about the internet my, myself or my students or anyone interested in music can can find that, you know just about anything. When I was a kid, you had to be lucky enough to have the TV turned on to a particular station, and if you missed it, chances were you'd never get a chance to see it again. Um, but the way that that we got exposed to music, and of course we got to see it live, but you could really you could just spend enough time with with each new album that came out, um, so that you you really digested it. You really knew like every note, and and the way that radio worked, it, uh, you know, if the Beatles or the or or the Beach Boys or whoever came out, and I'm, I, sh- I should mention Rolling Stones. Sorry, I, I wasn't a Stones fan <laughs> as a kid, but but when I you know, you know when I look back now at some of the early stuff, it's pretty great. Um, uh, but I, I you know I, yeah I was I was a Beatles guy and then I became a James Brown guy. 
anyway, um, try to go down memory lane. But it, it, the uh, the amount of time that, that we got to spend with 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 the music is a little bit different now. It's a, you, you have a different rapport uh, when you 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 can spend a week listening to one album as opposed to spending a day uh, uh, trying to pick from four million songs on Spotify or something. Well, I mean, that's a great point as well. And, you know, I, I have, you know, bemoaned and, and decried the, the fact that there's just oversaturation of music and maybe I'm an old soul. I, you know, I don't know, but I'm still the guy that likes a physical copy. You know, I, I, I'm a, I'm a CD guy. I, you know, I have a turntable, all that stuff, but that's, you know, my vinyl collection is is pretty much things from the past. I'll, I'll get a new vinyl record every now and then. But Wow. You know what I'm doing tomorrow? I'm meeting with a buyer from a Disc Union, it's one of the, maybe the biggest record store in Japan, and I'm, I'm selling off almost my entire LP collection. I sold several hundred uh, LPs to Amoeba Records here in Hollywood, um, but now I have about a thousand more. And I just I just finished the last spreadsheet entry on it last night, um, so I've got everything cataloged and and uh, yeah. So I'm uh, except for one shelf of LPs. Um, anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted you. You're talking about your CD collection. No, that's fine. And and I guarantee you, I've got some listeners that will be looking up that record store to try to find something out of the Peter Erskine collection. <laughs> <laughs> Man, there's. I mean, some of the some of the. I was like, wow, I can't believe I'm going to part with this. It's just amazing stuff that I spent a lifetime collecting. When I used to go to Europe, I you know I would look for and not just jazz stuff. I was looking for a lot of classical percussion rarities, um, and uh, you know I, I would just lug around this suitcase for for a couple months until I. I I got close enough to home where I could either mail them or give them to my parents. It was like when I was on the, on the Stan Kenton Big Dead. Um, I was always filling up my suitcase with, with LPs, just stuff like, whoa, you know, the recordings you'd never find in a record store in America. Um, and uh, I couldn't, you know, I'd have to wait maybe like, you know, six or eight weeks until I got close enough to home where I could then play them on my, my dad's stereo system. Uh, you're right. It's it's a whole different, whole different age. But you know, we live in the time we live in. So, well, yeah, very true. Um, you know, I've been very fortunate. You know that that I guess that I grew up. I've I've seen the best of both both worlds. You know, I I am of a uh, a vintage. You know, I was born in the in the late seventies, the mid to late seventies. Um, you know where we, you know. I witnessed the birth of the cassette, you know, I, I witnessed the birth of the compact disc. So a lot of my favorite records I've bought, you know, three or four times on different I witnessed formats. the birth of the eight track cartridge. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to age you here, Peter, you know, so, um, you know, but all joking aside, um, you know, I got a hold of your new record, you know, um, the group that you're calling Dr. Um, um, it's a double record. Half was done in the studio and half was, was kind of live. And, 
Um, I have spent some time with it. Um, you know, my, my wife and daughter, my daughter's very involved in ballet and loves all kinds of music, but you know, we've been kind of just jamming on that record around the house here for oh, fun. Yeah. For the last, you know, oh, I don't know. I, I probably got it a month or so ago. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about the record because it's so good. Um, you know, I think, I think some artists, you know, uh, you have, I think, 700 album credits to your name. And I think some artists, when they get to that point, it's just it's kind of an afterthought about putting out a new project. But what I was taken with as soon as I put it on was, wow, this is great. You know, I mean, it's (laughs) it's. truly you can tell you guys put some time into it and you know i have so many questions about it but i do want you to talk a little bit about the record i i know it was mostly recorded live you know what research i've done but it's um it's just a great double record that i want our listeners to check out well thank you um you know it's it's the third dr um album and it's the second one that we recorded uh in the studios up uh, up in Fort Wayne, where Sweetwater is headquartered. Now, um, if if there are any musicians listening, I'm going to assume most uh, most of your listeners are musicians, uh, particularly uh, musicians who buy any electronic gear. Chances are pretty good you're familiar with Sweetwater. They're uh, I think now they're the largest uh, online music retailer. Uh, they built a studio, a state of the art studio there. Of course, you know, if you want any piece of equipment, they have it. It's, like, pretty remarkable. Um, Just, I'm not exactly sure how it all happened, but we were invited originally to to take part in a, uh, almost, it was like a recording engineer's camp or workshop where recording engineers from, generally from the Midwest, um, would come to the studio and they'd uh, watch us in session um, and uh, uh, the, the 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 managing engineer Mark Hornsby would say well this is how I'm miking the bass drum this is the kind of compression I'm using blah 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 and so we 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 don't you know like we're the animals in the zoo being observed <laughs> uh, doing our thing um and they said, and you can, uh, you know, you can keep the master tapes. Well, they, they uh, couldn't find like some kind of local garage band for this, Peter. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they had done it with a couple of other artists, and it, 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 it's just all becoming part of a, a tour of the Midwest. Sure. Um, and uh, then all of a sudden, they said, uh, a marketing department wants to postpone this engineering thing, and I said, whoa, this is a problem. I, you know, I. We're kind of stuck out there in the Midwest, and I've committed. You know, I've purchased all the 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 the, the flight tickets for the band, and so uh, Mark uh, stepped into the rescue. Said, "Look, um, why don't you come to the studio, um, and uh, let's let's just concentrate on making a record this time." And so they very graciously uh, gave us the studio time, and I thought, "Well, why not? It might be interesting to." To work on a project and not be home, you know, so so that at the end of the day we don't all just drive home in all this LA traffic and get back into our, our own little universe and then come back into the studio. So 
we're, you're kind of there. And, and, and Fort Wayne's a very nice town, but the, for four fellows from Los Angeles, not like a whole lot, you know, unless the minor league team they have there was playing a ball game that night, there's not a whole lot that, that, that would be too tempting to do. So we pretty much just stayed in the studio and worked. Uh, or went out for dinner. So um, uh, that was the album uh, titled uh, Second Opinion. And uh, I loved the sound that we got in the studio, and I loved that focus, somehow that focus of everyone's energy, just like, we're here, let's just think about the music. Okay, so fast forward to last June, and um, they said we, we would actually like to do the, the engineer's workshop this time around. So I said, okay, fine. And um, I, I was going to treat it pretty much just like that. And we didn't do much in terms of pre-production, preparing the music. And then I thought, wait a minute. We should, uh, we should try to, you know, if we're going to record, let's, let's do it for real. Um, so now we have, a, we have this wonderful audience. And, and these engineers were, all, were pretty much all fans. And and so they dug what we were doing. And so they were interested not only on a technical level, but on a musical level. And um, that was a fun audience to have in the studio. We were challenged by this lack of pre-production, but it just got everyone's improvisational juices flowing. And, and John Beasley helped corral the music into really great shape because he's such a wonderful music director and arranger. Um, and Bob Shepard on saxophone, Benjamin Shepard, spelled differently, no relation to Bob, incredible young bass player from New Zealand. Um, Man, you said a mouthful there. Yeah. <laughs> wow. He's, unbelie- he's unbelievable. Where he, did you find that guy? I mean, that's... Uh, uh, John Beasley recommended him, and and, and, and I told Benjamin, and, and I mean it, that uh, not since Jocko have, have I run into a bass player that that has been that much fun to play with, and that good wow that's saying a lot right there folks yeah he's he's really something and of course a lot of other bass players i love to play with but benjamin does have something uh, beyond outstanding and unique and so anyway so the quartet's a lot of fun and and i realized wow we we got an album now it's it's like the old days vinyl album in terms of the amount of music. And I said that's good. I mean, you know, old in the old days sometimes records would be between twenty five to thirty some minutes long. You know, CDs uh, it can be too much music. Uh, one of my favorite albums that I made, an album called Sweet Soul, um, it's too long. You know, I, and I always regretted that I added that one extra tune, and we didn't even put everything on that that we had recorded. Um, but, you know, 70 minutes of music in one sitting, that's a lot, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, I said, let's just we'll put this out, you know. Uh, then the band went on tour, and a few months after the tour, the, the, the tour organizer, uh, Alessandro Travi, uh, he said, you know, I, I got these Pro Tools files. Um, and here are the rough mixes. Uh, I walked by the the uh, front of house sound desk at the end of this concert. I saw this Pro Tools session running on a guy's laptop, and I said, "What's this?" The guy said, "Oh, I recorded." The... He said, "Well, you know, you have to give me the the files." And the guy was, "Yeah, fine, you know." So 
he said, I think this is your next album. And I listened to it, and I was just stunned how good the performance was. So I sent all these tracks to Mark Hornsby at Sweetwater, and I said, look, let's let's not put ourselves in this uh, dilemma of our own making of having to choose one or the other. Let's let's put them both out. And and it kind of harkens back a bit to um, the first full album I made with Weather Report, a double album called 830, um, which was originally supposed to be just a live album, but due to a colossal engineering mistake one day in the studio, <laughs> um, the, the key live piece got partially erased. Um, that's that's a long story. I think I talk about it in my book, No Beethoven. Anyway, um, it was a, it was a happy accident because we decided, well, uh, let's go in the studio, and um, and so that's how the eight thirty album became whole or complete. And I thought, ah, let's let's do that with this. So I'll, I'll pick the best tracks from the from the concert and the studio thing, and. You know, we'll see what happens. Uh, this, this, I'm not. It's not my swan song, but it's. It might be the last fuzzy music project. I'm not sure. It's been a lot of work. It's been a lot of fun over 20 some years, having our own label. Um, but it, it, it's a lot of work for my wife. Uh, it, it's it's a kitchen tabletop operation, um, and and I said, well, if I got to, you know, we're going to go out. Let's go out with a real bang, and and I think it's the the best recording I've ma- I've I've managed to make as a drummer. Um, and and I'm not saying it boastfully. It's just like it just seems like everything sort of come together, and and kind of feeling that way about my drumming in general. It's it's never been as fun, uh, as interesting, and as sort of natural. You know, it's like I I I I, I don't fight the instrument anymore. And I think that's one of the great things about growing older. You just realize you don't have to fight everything in front of you. I think you are on to something there. Um, you know, and, and I will say this about the record. Um, you know, the the one track that, that I keep going back to and, and another, you know, shout out to Benjamin Shepard is hypnotherapy. Mm. Um <laughs> funky in it oh my god i mean <laughs> I, you know look i've played with some great bassists over the years but if i could uh, manage to to get this guy on retainer you know i would i would probably take out a mortgage um <laughs> because he's <laughs> he's special there's no doubt about it but the, the song is just so good and you know i i felt like you're playing on this record had it sounded like it was uh, uh, more energized and certainly had a little bit uh, more funk to it, if that makes any sense to you. A total sense. That's the whole idea of the the, the Doctor Um. You know, is uh, you know, it's funny. I, I was uh, I was sorting through old paperwork. Um, I came back from this most recent trip to Europe. Um, our office worker and my wife said, "Well, we got a box of stuff for you to go through." And I found all this, all this fax correspondence, and uh, between myself and Walter Becker, and and I was pitching a project to Walter. It was going to be an R and B funk project, and <laughs> the name of it was going to be Doctor Um. Now, 
the the same source, Jack Fletcher, who I mentioned, uh, I think on all the albums. Um, you know, he was the guy that suggested it to me, and he was writing lyrics and like he he he's long been wanting me to to do some kind of funk or R&B thing, and then the idea you know lay dormant for for a long long time, and then he he said, hey man, you got it, you got to do it. It's it's time to put out Doctor Um. So it was thanks to my old high school buddy that I said, yeah, a little more energy, uh, enough of this anti drumming stuff. I've I've explored that as far as I can, and um, it's you know the the less is more aesthetic comes into play. I mean, you you can hear it even on this and on some of the the funk stuff. I mean, it's pretty unnoty, uh, and that's what gives it its feel or power. Um, yet I'm not afraid to to have some fun and play too. And you know, and 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 it's it's I think it's a result of of kind of a learning process. Recently, I've been you know I've been checking out, and and this is where Facebook has been cool. I've been checking out you know drum videos that Mike Clark would post, and then um, this great drummer Herman Matthews, uh, who subbed for David Garibaldi for a while on Tower of Power. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, boy, if you're not familiar with Herman's drum, you should check it out. It is so funky, and and I was just checking out the way, just how simple he played, and and but how much energy there was. So the strength was not coming from a bunch of notes. The strength was coming from the intention, you know. Yeah. And of course, that would be appealing because that that taps right into my the, what I was trying to figure out in terms of. You know the creative jazz stuff. How can I make this? How can I make the drums do what I want them to do, but get away from the flurry of notes? Because it was the it was the interruption of flow that was bothering me. Not even necessarily the amount of notes, but my inability when I was younger to to complete, let's say, musical or drumming sentences without just burping in the middle of them. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. for, for lack of a better term. So now I think, yeah, I'm kind of getting that one figured out, um, and and just having so much fun doing it. Well, uh, you know, and I it, it shows on the record. I mean, I, and I mean this sincerely. Um, you know, it's one of the the better records that has landed on my desk in the past year. Uh, honestly, um, I, I just. Excellent. I love it. It's fantastic. Um, Peter, I want to be very respectful of your time. Um, we're, we're getting towards the end of our interview. One of our traditions here on the drum shuffle is we always ask um, our guests for a good piece of advice for other musicians, other drummers, especially um, your career just speaks for itself. So we are all dying to hear your piece of advice for other My musicians. Piece of yeah. Well, um, well, at the risk of being redundant, that's never stopped me before. <laughs> um, play what you want to hear. Don't try playing what you imagine someone else might want to hear. Just trust yourself. Trust your judgment. Play what you want to hear and have fun. That's my advice. Oh, that's, that's great advice. Right. Oh, okay. okay. I'll add one. I'll add one more. Okay. Two more. Can I add two more? Absolutely. And this right. is your show, Peter. All right. Okay. So the next one is, um, this comes from the medical profession, do no harm. Oh, yeah. And my third one 
make sure you register and vote in November. All right? <laughs> that, 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 that's really good advice. Um, you know, <laughs> yes. there's a whole lot of people out there saying they don't like the way things are happening or they love the way things are happening. That is your opportunity to either continue it or change it. <laughs> All right. Peter, um, thank well, thanks you. so much for the, for the call oh. and uh, the opportunity to speak with everyone in Radio Land. Absolutely, and, uh, we, and I uh, and and thank I uh, thank everyone out there for for still listening to uh, to my music. I appreciate it. Well, we appreciate you taking time to come on. Um, you're welcome here anytime. Keep us posted on any uh, new happenings in Peter Erskine world, uh, folks. The album is called On Call by the Doctor Um Band. Go find that record. You're gonna love it. Peter, thanks so much. Thank you. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye bye. All right, gang, that's going to do it for episode 24 of the Drum Shuffle. Thanks so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. As always, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss a single episode. Leave us a rating or review. It helps us tremendously to continue to grow, and we really do appreciate it. Many, many thanks go to Peter Erskine for taking the time to come on. Uh, What an honor to have a living legend like Peter come on our show. We really do appreciate that as well. Next week, we are going to be joined by uh, really a founder of West Coast punk music. Uh, That's right. DJ Bonebreak from the band X will be on the show next week. So you're not going to want to miss that. And we're working real hard to get some really cool guests on the show moving forward. So uh, again, thank you so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. We can't do any of this without every single one of you. So until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, guys.